Section 5 of Mimic Life by Anna Koromawit Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Stella by Anna Koromawit Ritchie. Chapter 5 The first perilous ordeal passed, its auguries all auspicious. Stella thought to experience a sense of relief, of serene security, of freedom from the harassing doubts which had tortured her spirit for days. But the weight of a new responsibility that pressed upon her mind soon dispelled these fallacious hopes. She had succeeded, but, alas, how uncertain was the tenure by which that success was held. Are even the smiles of princes as inconstant as public favor? What air-blown bubbles are lighter than the empty breath of popular acclamations? What is an actor but the world's puppet? To be today extolled to the skies, tomorrow derided and denounced as an egotistic impostor. Has not the various caprice, the merest accident, again and again, caused an audience to pluck from the brows of their minions the laurels of toilsome years? When the idol is elevated to its throne and clothed with all imagined perfections, what is left but to tear it down? The existence of the actor, then, must be a daily struggle to maintain the slippery eminence he has won, a constant battle against the uplifted hands ready to pluck him thence, a nightly strife to ascend beyond their reach. And had Stella no prescience of this direful contest? No. The bitter knowledge could only be revealed after she had taken her first irrevocable step. On the morning succeeding her debut, she forsook her pillow almost before the sun began to draw the shady curtain from Aurora's bed. She rose unrefreshed, Care had taken up his mansion in her breast, and his enemy's sleep would not lodge near him. Her limbs ached as she staggered across the floor. Her eyes could scarcely see. She was compelled to lie down again, and, having selected a volume of Shakespeare, returned to her couch not to slumber, but to study. She was to enact Desdemona that night, to rehearse Desdemona that morning. Lady of Lyon was the place selected for the following night. Evadne for the third. In the crowded laboratory of her brain, poetic phantoms must needs receive vitality and assume shape and substance. The book remained in her hands until Maddie's summons to breakfast, nor it was wholly thrown aside as the young actress performed her morning toilette. She fastened the volume to the frame of the mirror, and while smoothing the rich tangles of her hair, her eyes were fixed upon the open pages. More than once her mind became so thoroughly engrossed that the comb dropped from her fingers. Her hand involuntarily clasped themselves over her head in their favorite position, and she walked to and fro in the small chamber, rehearsing aloud. It was long past the usual hour when she joined her mother at breakfast. The latter seemed for once inclined to converse, but Stella could not talk, nor could she partake of food, 
with mental ailment her throbbing brain was overloaded and labored fruitlessly to digest its too abundant supply i'm afraid you're forgetting rehearsal miss stella we shall hardly be in time said maddie and stella was quickly roused from her fit of abstraction the attendant identified herself so completely with her charge that the we was constantly upon her lips we played desdemona tonight we played virginia last night mr tennant had not arrived when they appeared upon the stage other members of the company calculating upon the great tragedian's habitual dilatoriousness were also absent the prompter and his flippant juvenile assistant were the only persons at their post Stella, the interim was not lost time she seated herself at the manager's table and diligently resumed her studies she was totally unconscious of what occurred around her until fisk made his call and the rehearsal commenced mrs fairfax enacted emilia stella had again the encouraging support of the friend to whom she hourly became more attached mrs fairfax was so helpful so considerate of the feelings of others so lenient to their failings a being to whom all gracious acts seemed so natural that she was respected and beloved throughout the theatre rehearsal passed off smoothly it was nearly two o'clock when it ended and stella had promised to be at her tutor's residence by one she had hoped to devote at least two hours to the study of an art which still progressing is never perfected it was vexatious that her time was thus unexpectedly curtailed she could not require mr oakland to abandon other engagements she prized his instructions for they pointed out landmarks by means of which she could travel safely on her new pathway his analytical criticism unfolded the subtlest beauties of the character they were investigating stella used to call the process a poetic dissection the author's most hidden meanings were brought into the full light and often what was the mere outline of an ideal creation was gracefully filled up and rendered a coherent whole mr oakland though he had been charmed with stella's personation of gentle virginia was not prodigal of eulogium he bade her remember that the character was not one in which her powers could be tested that what she had accomplished was but as a few corsican sparks compared to a steady upward shooting flame when contrasted with what she must achieve to a rank among earth-treading stars of first magnitude and mattie reached the theatre nearly an hour later that night than on the previous evening fisk had shouted his last music kick kick accompanying his other whimsicalities by yankee doodle with his knuckles on every door he passed and stella had not yet donned her white satin train and secured her net of pearls over her locks which to-night were allowed to escape in struggling wriglets to her waist the orchestra had ceased the curtain rose stella's heart when she descended the staircase palpitated almost as painfully as on the evening before she was accompanied only by mattie who bore her train mrs fairfax did not appear until the second act and her toilette was not completed as stella passed behind the scenes 
Floyd leaped out of some dark corner and rushed up to her, whispering, Such a house! Such a house! Then fled again. Perdita caught sight of her as she passed the green room door. With a confused mien, the young ballet girl joined her and placed a long strip of lace in her hand. It was delicately knitted of white linen thread. It is the best I can do. Do you think it pretty? asked Perdita timidly. Very pretty indeed. What do you do with it? Sell it, generally, to the ladies of the theater. It does almost as well on stage dresses as real lace. One can't tell the difference from the boxes. Perhaps, perhaps you would like this piece? You may have dresses that need lace trimming. I should like it very much. I want five or six yards of lace for the dress I wear in the Lady of Lyon tomorrow. But you have not more than two yards here. Let me knit you the rest. It will be such a help to me. You shall have it in time for the dress. I don't mind sitting up all night. You'll give me the order, and I won't disappoint you. And make you sit up all night knitting? I would not like to do that to you. Used to it, replied the girl tranquilly. I am only too glad to obtain work. May I knit the lace for you? she pleaded. Yes, certainly. Only Mattie must have it at least an hour before we start for the theater tomorrow. As Stella listened to the ballet girl's warm outpouring of gratitude and watched her flying needles, she thought to herself, If only I am successful. In the center of what a field for performance of kindly offices shall I stand? What a wide sphere of usefulness will be thrown open to me? Why may I not foster this violet by the mossy stone, transplant it, and perhaps to some more fertile soil? It is for such exercise of good my heart has long yearned. Success will be doubly glorious if her laurels gift me with this power. Desdemona does not appear until the third scene of the tragedy. She is then led by Iago into the council chamber. Perdita's father represented one of the most potent, grave, and reverend signors. Stella noticed that the thoughtful daughter broke off abruptly from the conversation and unfastened a wig of flowing white hair, which she had secured to her waistband. Her father, in senatorial robes, had just emerged from his underground dressing room. She went up to him, carefully adjusted the wig on his head, talking to him all the while in a low, loving tone. The task completed, the knitting needles flashed back and forth again as she stood by his side. Desdemona called, loudly whispered Fisk behind her. She started and commenced running towards the entrance from which she was supposed to make her appearance when Fisk intercepted her rebukingly. Plenty of time. Keep cool. Take it easy. Don't be in a hurry. Two minutes by the watch. My calls always give enough time to prevent ruffling feathers. The icy tremor, the giddiness, the choking faintness were coming back. She listened to Mr. Tennant's blustering delivery of Othello's memorable speech before the Senate, the course of his wooing, the witchcraft which he had used. 
were made known through a succession of explosive sounds accompanied by a series of spasmodic gesticulations. Instead of the modest, exculpatory negation warranted by the text, his manner spoke defiance to the haughty potentates who dared to demand such a history from his august lips. Stella's agitation was not so great that she failed to make this criticism. As the Moorish hero announced her presence with, Here comes the lady. Let her witness it. Your hand, please, said the representative of Iago. She had not noticed that he was standing beside her. Stella gave him her hand. Maddie smoothed down and floated the snowy train. Iago led in Desdemona. She curtsied low to the duke. The stage was arranged in such a manner that, to face the senators, her back was necessarily turned to the audience. Its reception passed unnoticed by Stella. Even had she possessed sufficient self-command to turn and acknowledge their greeting by an obeisance, it would have been considered a breach of good taste. The spectators would at once lost sight of Maiden Never So Bold, of spirit so still and quiet that her motion blushed at herself, and viewed but the actress, the novice. When Brabrantio addresses his daughter with, Come hither, mistress, you perceive in all this noble company where most you owe obedience, bowed her head with an inclination of filial reverence, then in a tone of modest frankness, her speaking eyes lifted to her father's face, and afterwards turned confidingly upon the moor, she replied, My noble father, I do perceive here a divided duty. To you I am bound for life and education. My life and education both do learn me how to respect you. You are the lord of duty. I am hitherto your daughter." But here's my husband, and so much duty as my mother showed to you, preferring you before her father, so much I challenge that I profess due to the more, my lord. The audience seldom failed to respond to Desdemona's sentiment, even if its delivery command no other approval. But in this instant, poet and interpreter won equal meed. In a moment, the young actress had merged her own individuality into ideal personation. Desdemona's touching softness, the tender pride with which she confesses and defends her devotion to her newly made husband were exquisitely illustrated in Stella's glowing recital of the lines, that I did love the more to live with him. My downright violence and storm of fortunes may trumpet to the world, my heart subdued, even to the very quality of my lord. I saw Othello's visage in his mind and to his honors, and his valiant parts did I my soul and fortunes consecrate. Her pleading to the duke to be allowed to accompany her husband to the wars, her imploring face as she sank at her father's feet and clung to his robe, mutely supplicating a blessing, her shudder when he threw her off, exclaiming, Look to her more, 
Have a quick eye to see. She hath deceived her father, and may thee. Her expression of grateful joy, when Othello lifts her, with the confident reply, My life upon her faith. Give warrant of the fidelity of her conception. Desdemona next enters with Emilia, Iago, and Rodrigo. They have just landed on the island of Cyprus, and are thus poetically welcomed by Cassio. Oh, behold, the riches of the ship is come on shore, ye men of Cyprus. Let her have your knees. Hail to thee, lady, and the grace of heaven before, behind thee, and on every hand, e'en wheel thee round. Iago's scoffs at womanhood are the leading feature of the brief dialogue that ensues. Desdemona, though she replies merrily to his jest, betrays a secret solicitude in the absence of Othello, not merely by her anxious query, There's one gone to the harbor, and her declaration, I am not merry, but I do beguile the thing I am by seeming otherwise. But by her troubled mien, her abstracted looking in the distance, her start of joy, and the sudden lighting up of her countenance at the sound of the trumpet which Iago pronounces to be that of the moor. Let's meet and receive him, gushed in a burst of rapture from her lips. There was no hesitation when she rushed into his arms as he greeted her with, Oh, my fair warrior, it gives me wonder great is my content to see you here before me. Oh, my soul's joy! If after every tempest come such calms, let the winds blow till they have wakened death, and let the laboring bark climb hills of seas, Olympus high, and duck again as low as hells from heaven. If it were now to die, twere happy now to be most happy. For, I fear, my soul hath her content so absolute that not another comfort like to this succeeds in unknown fate. Stella never once thought of Mr. Tennant, the supercilious, exacting, self-sufficient tragedian, but of noble Othello. Not of Stella Rosenvelt, the unsophisticated maiden, but of the true-hearted, ingenious Desdemona, the bride of her Moorish husband. The least undue reserve, the slightest shrinking, would have been an evidence of that painful self-consciousness which is indissolubly allied to mediocrity, but which genius tramples underfoot had held her off, gazing fondly at her face, but with the last words he suddenly drew her to his heart. The action was unanticipated by the luckless Desdemona. Her face was upraised, her forehead came in contact with his chin. The sublime and the ridiculous embraced at the same moment as the moor and the lady. The reddish-black dye which gave to Othello's visage its swarthy hue could be removed by a touch. Stella's forehead had largely received the somber impression. Not suspecting the untoward accident, she replied in the same impassioned strain, The heavens forbid but that our loves and comforts should increase 
even as our days do grow. Othello rejoins, Amen to that, sweet powers. I cannot speak enough of this content. It stops me here. It is too much joy. And this, and this, the greatest discords be that or our hearts shall make. And while he bent over her, pretense of suiting the action to the word, stage salutations being generally the very obvious make-believe, he whispered, don't turn your face towards the audience for your life. Your forehead's as black as the ace of spades. Down fell poor Stella from her poetic heights. The black paint, its begriming touch to her own fair forehead, Mr. Tennant's commonplace tone dissolved the spell. The loving Venetian quickly melted away. The disenchanted girl shrank from Mr. Tennant's encircling arms. She raised her hand to her forehead to hide the stain, but only smeared the inky hue into her eyes. She was strongly inclined to dart from the stage, perhaps would have yielded to the temptation had not Mrs. Fairfax noticed the mishap and, approaching her with a step and an air that suited Amelia, whispered, "'They won't notice it, my dear. You're off in a few lines. Don't try to rub it away.' You're only making it worse, and you will attract the attention of the audience. As she spoke, she bowed her head deferentially, causing the spectators to suppose that Desdemona's attendant and confidant was merely delivering to her some courteous message. Stella was at last conducted from the scene by Mr. Tennant. She heard Fisk's peals of laughter as he passed her on his way to make the calls and the suppressed merriment of the other actors. As she removed the disfiguring marks, she resolved to keep at a respectful distance from her grimed-visaged lord. Desdemona, according to the stage version, which omits her during the midnight brawl when Cassio fights with Roderigo, is next discovered conversing with the disgraced Cassio and pledging herself with all the generosity of an unsuspicious, inexperienced nature to restore him to his lost position. Before Amelia here, I give thee warrant of thy place, assure thee. If I do vow a friendship, I'll perform it, to the last article. My lord shall never rest. I'll watch him tame, and talk him out of patience. I'll intermingle everything he does with Cassio's suit. Therefore be merry, Cassio." for thy solicitor shall rather die than give thy cause away. The promise was uttered with emphatic earnestness. Stella had again surrendered herself to the magic of personation. Cassio departs. Othello enters. Desdemona at once playfully introduces her suit. When it is denied, she, with bewitching coquetry, chides her lord for being more niggard of his courteous gifts to her than she is to him. I wonder in my soul that you should ask me that I should deny. Stand so memoring on. What, Michael Cassio, that came a-wooing with you, and many a time when I have spoken of you dispraisingly, hath taken your part. To have so much to do, to bring him in, trust me, I could do much. Othello. Prithee, no more. Let him come when he will. I will deny thee nothing. Desdemona. 
Why, this is not a boon. Tis as I should entreat you wear your gloves, or feed on nourishing dishes, or keep you warm, or sue you to do a particular profit to your own person. Nay, when I have suit wherein I mean to touch your love indeed, it shall be full of poise and difficulty, and fearful to be granted. Othello desires her to leave him for a while. She yields to his request, but, not forgetting for a moment her promised advocacy, turns back with an arch taunt. Shall I deny you? No. Farewell, my lord. Whate'er you be, I am obedient. Before Desdemona and Othello meet again, Iago has roused the green-eyed monster slumbering in the moor's breast. But at fair Desdemona's approach, the evil spirit vanishes as demons fly in the presence of angels. Othello beholds her coming, and penetrated by the aura of purity that surrounds her, flings away his unworthy doubts and bursts forth. If she be false, oh, then heaven mocks itself. I'll not believe it. The scene is very short. Desdemona summons her husband to join the generous islanders at dinner. With the quick eyes of love, she notices his dejection. He assigns a pain above his forehead, here, as the cause. She would bind the aching brow with her handkerchief, but Othello impatiently puts by her hand, from which the handkerchief drops. It is silently secured by Emilia, who afterwards gives it to Iago. The following scene finds Desdemona searching for the lost handkerchief, her husband's much-loved gift. Othello unexpectedly breaks in upon her, and now the powers of the young actress enfolded themselves as she portrayed Desdemona's feminine softness, her unresisting, defenseless nature, her perfect trust in the nobleness of her lord. She greets him tenderly, and when he asks for her hand and scans her face with suspicious eyes, rudely telling her that the hands he holds is moist, she replies with a smile, It yet hath felt no age, nor known no sorrow. Her look of innocent wonder, as Othello warns her that such a hand requires fasting, prayer, exercise devout, and when he checks himself and adds, "'Tis a good hand, a frank one," and her whole-souled reply, "'You may indeed say so, for t'was the hand that gave away my heart.'" Her careless disclaimer of all knowledge that hands were ever given without hearts, like pertinacity in reverting to her former suit for Cassio's pardon, her almost guilty start when Othello asked for her handkerchief, equivocation and confusion, her sudden pallor and violent trembling, the quick lights and shadows flitting over her face when he tells her of the charm that is woven in that handkerchief, the misery it would wring upon her to lose it or give it away, her look of frozen horror as she gasped out, then would to heaven that I had never seen it. Her short, frightened answers to his questioning violence, her hysterical effort to force a laugh and feign composure as she tries to speak of Cassio again, and when Othello rushes out and Amelia, taunting her with incredulity, coldly asks, Is not this man jealous? 
her gazing after him with dilated eyes quivering lips then turning upon amelia with a face all wonder and slowly answering i ne'er saw this before her subdued greeting of cassio who now enters her mournful communication to him that her avocation is not now in tune snatching at cassio's suggestion that something of moment has moved othello and her brightening countenance as she persuades herself is something of state matters which has disturbed him her extracting comfort from the reflection that in such cases men's natures wrangle with inferior things though great ones are their object the regretful sigh with which she adds nay we must think men are not gods nor of them look for such observances as fit the bridal her determination to seek othello evidently because she cannot bear his absence though she bashfully veils her motive under the plea that she must further entreat for cassio's reinstatement all these changing emotions were delineated with a skill that stamped the youthful actress as one who vindicated her own right to interpret the great master of the drama by her bold yet delicate grand yet lifelike embodiment of his conception after this desdemona seeks othello's presence accompanied by her cousin lodovico the latter bears a packet of import to the moor she has resumed her wonted smiling sincerity she prattles with lodovico of cassio the unkind breach between him and her lord and even when othello accosts her in a wrathful tone she inquires his will with a gentle my lord nor as his rage increases does she seem willing or able to perceive its workings once she turns to lodovico with an incredulous what is he angry as though she needed confirmation of what is so apparent her cousin tells her that doubtless something in the letter he is perusing moves him and she is satisfied but when othello's ire breaks all bounds he strikes her with the letter she utters a low cry and bursts into tears looking up with the mild and touching reproach i have not deserved this othello orders her from his presence and she meekly replies i will not stay to offend you in the ensuing scene the moor wrought to frenzy by the conviction that his jealous fears are planted on firm ground sends emilia for his wife desdemona's whole demeanour is now changed as she enters her head droops her eyes peruse the ground her limbs quake she faintly demands my lord what is your will othello harshly bids her to let him see her eyes to let him look at her face she lifts to his a ghastly countenance and murmurs with suppressed breathing what horrible fancies this after a moment sinking at his feet she exclaims upon my knees what doth your speech import i understand a fury in your word but not the words when her husband frames his doubts of her infidelity into language she starts up horror-stricken and too much amazed even for indignation asks alas what ignorant sin have i committed but when he unfolds his meaning in plainer and more revolting words she is stunned by the monstrous accusation and can hardly answer by heaven you do me wrong 
Othello asks her if this charge be not true. She drops upon her knees, and, lifting up her arms and her beauteous face to heaven, fervently replies, No, as I am a Christian, no, as I shall be saved. There was so much reality in the action, the guileless countenance, the heaven-appealing tone, that it thrilled the whole audience. The repeated rounds that testified their recognition of the true Promethean spark were followed by a loud, long cheer. When Othello, in the succeeding speech, applies to his wife a term of worst opprobrium, she falls upon the ground as though the word had been shot from a deadly level of a gun and murdered her. Othello summons Amelia and leaves his prostrate wife to her care. Amelia raises her friend. Desdemona's mind seems confused by the sorrows which she yet makes a feeble effort to hide. Then, moved by a sudden thought, she bids Amelia call Iago. Desdemona imagines that he may explain Othello's conduct. Iago appears before her, but when she would repeat to him the insulting epithet used by her husband, her modest tongue refuses its office. The word cannot pass her pure lips. She weeps in silence while Amelia descants upon the brutality of the moor. But the young wife's affection is not shaken. A love doth so approve him that even his stubbornness, checks and frowns, have grace and favor in them. She never dreams of blaming or reproaching him. Her whole thoughts are engrossed with plans to win him back. She rushes to Iago in proxisms of agony and cries out, Oh, good Iago, what shall I do to win my lord again? Good friend, go to him, for by this light of heaven I know not how I lost him. Here I kneel. If e'er my will did trespass against his love, either in discourse or thought or actual deed, or that mine eyes, mine ears, or any sense delighted them in any other form, or that I do not yet, or ever did, ever will, though he do shake me off to beggarly divorcement. Love him dearly. Comfort forswear me. Unkindness may do much, but his unkindness may defeat my life, but never taint my love. Stella's utterance of these lines was sublime in its pathos. As the kneeling girl was raised by Mrs. Fairfax at the conclusion of her speech, the latter could not refrain from whispering, Good, good, beautifully given. You are indeed an actress. The intention was most kind, but its effect unfortunate. The economum recalled Stella to herself. It broke the dream. She was Desdemona no longer. She suddenly became constrained and awkward. It was fortunate that the scene drew rapidly to its close. The exceeding length of the play requires the omission of a most charming dialogue between Emilia and Desdemona at the conclusion of the fourth act, one which is essential to the perfect development of Desdemona's character. In the fifth act, Desdemona is beheld asleep. She is waked by Othello bending over her to taste the balmy breath that doth almost persuade justice to break her sword. Her terror, the vehement affirmations of her innocence, her frantic pleadings for a few moments more of life make up the scene. 
stella was not prepared for the violence with which mr tennant thrust the pillow over her face holding it firmly on either side her stifled shrieks might well sound natural to the audience she felt as though she were suffocating in reality but the more she struggled the more tightly the unreflecting tragedian pressed upon her mouth it was her duty to lie still before he could relinquish his hold was it that amelia's voice at the chamber door required him to reply poor stella lay with the pillow over her face and being dead or nearly so to the audience she dared not move in a choking tone by no means simulated she groaned out in advance of her cue the few words that caused amelia to fly to her mistress mrs fairfax not only removed the pillow but placed the young girl in a more comfortable position stella could now lie still and listen to the scene she expected to remain in the same attitude until the curtain fell but othello when the certainty of desdemona's innocence was forced upon him sprang to her side seized her in his arms half dragged her from the bed and sank upon the ground himself leaving her head hanging over the side of the couch her long hair swept the floor he wound his fingers in the tresses pressed them to his lips and moaned aloud the picture was no doubt one that mr tennant had well studied and it certainly was very beautiful very truthful its effect upon the luckless representative of desdemona was entirely disregarded the blood rushed to her head until her brain seemed bursting crushed by a mountain load her senses were leaving her it was with the greatest difficulty that she could repress a cry every instant appeared an hour she could no longer distinguish the language declaimed in her very ears she only heard a confused sound she could endure no more she tried to groan to move but in vain when the curtain descended she was found unconscious mr finch was in the act of carrying her to her dressing-room when remembrance slowly returned for some time she could neither stand nor speak she was wholly unable to respond to the summons before the curtain an apology was made and her absence accounted for by the plea of indisposition mrs fairfax had fortunately some knowledge of a newly discovered and most efficacious treatment of apoplexy which the attack resembled she seized a jug of water and poured it from a height upon the head of the prostrate girl stella gradually revived and soon was able to reassure a terrified mattie by a few affectionate words soon after the young girl was conveyed to her home end of section five